As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, uh, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, uh, who has, more will be given. But who has, uh, excuse me, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's great to gather again with you all. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me introduce myself. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. 
I would love to meet you after service if you want to. Um, just come say hi. We're continuing our series through Luke, as you heard, just read. That's what we do here. So um, join me in a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Father, we praise you this morning. Thank you for another Sunday morning gathering with your people. I do look forward to this morning very much, Lord, to worship with your people, to fellowship, to sing, to, to preach, and to hear your word preached. And we just declare that you are worthy, Jesus. You are the king, and you are worthy of our lives and our praise. Pray that we would, we would see you again fresh this morning, Jesus, that we would joyfully submit to you, the worthy king, and live our lives for your glory. Be glorified now and in the things that I say and the things that we all think and uh, the praise and even in the conviction that rises in our hearts, may it all be for your glory and our joy. And we pray it all in the name of King Jesus. Amen. I forgot to say, if I did have a title for this sermon this morning, which I don't always have, it would be Joyful Submission to the Worthy King. So my wife, Audrey, and I, we have gotten into this show, some of you may have seen, called The Crown. Stephen makes fun of me for how much I love British dramas. That's fine. I'm an open book. It's a great show. It's a historical drama about the British royal family, chiefly about Queen Elizabeth II. Before this show, I didn't know who Queen Elizabeth II was. I, I, I would have guessed, is that the Queen of England? So just in case you... Didn't know that. That's the queen. She just passed away like last year. And we recently, in this show, we saw a scene between Princess Diana, hopefully you all know who that is, and uh, Prince Philip. I didn't know who that was. That's the former queen's late husband. Got it? Prince Philip and Princess Diana are having a conversation. And it seems the show portrays that Princess Diana had a really hard time fitting into the royal family. She felt as if the whole family, and especially her husband, Prince Charles, who is the son of Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth, he's now the king right now, um, he, he felt, she felt like the family, and especially her husband, Prince Charles, were cold and loveless. And Prince Philip in this scene is starting to tell her, I, I know what it's like to feel, to be a part of this family, and he starts ex describing it, and then he says, you know what, what is it like to be a part of this family, Diana? And she responds, cold, frozen tundra, an icy, dark, loveless cave with no light, no hope anywhere, not even the faintest crack. Princess Diana goes on to say that if the family can't give her the love and the security that she deserves, she's going to leave Prince Charles. She doesn't say the D word divorce, but that's totally implied. I'm going to divorce him. I'm going to leave him. And Prince Philip doesn't like that at all. In the previous episodes, you see this pressure on the royal family to be this perfect family. And this is embarrassing, but I don't care. I didn't, re I didn't realize that the monarch of England was the head of the Church of England. They, they say that they're going to be defenders of the Christian faith, so divorce is absolutely not allowed. If you're miserable and there's tons of adultery in the royal family marriages, they still cannot get divorced because that makes the queen look bad. So when Diana says this to Philip, he gets pretty frustrated. The royal family must be a family that all of England looks up to and respects. 
Diana's married in from the outside. She didn't grow up in this royal family, and coincidentally, so did Prince Philip. And she reminds Prince Philip, we're both outsiders, but we're really not that similar. And Prince Philip says, I'm starting to see that, Diana. And Philip says this to Diana. You're right to call me an outsider. We all are. I was an outsider on the day that I met the 13-year-old princess that I now call my wife. After all these years, I still am. We all are. Everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider, apart from the one person, the only person that matters. She is the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all of our duty. Your problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is. There's some deep truth to what Philip said to Diana. My heart goes out to the royal family if that's true, and it kind of seems like it is. That the only one that matters in that whole family was Queen Elizabeth. She was the oxygen they breathed, the essence of their duty. And Philip said that Diana's problem was that she hadn't understood that yet. And if sinful humans can say that about another sinful human, even a monarch, how much more can we Christians say that about King Jesus? He is the one person, the only person that matters. He's the oxygen we breathe, the essence of all of our duty. I would push the illustration more even. Often when our, our sin rises up, when we forget that the universe revolves around him and not me. It's all about him and his glory and not me and my comfort. It's not a perfect illustration, okay? I'm not saying that we become lost, lonely, and irrelevant when we submit to Jesus as king. In fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? How much better is the gospel in living for King Jesus than living for the monarch of England? We do well to remember this morning that our lives are all about King Jesus. Last week, we saw the need for us to turn from our self-reliance to full reliance on Christ. He foretold his death, reminding us that he is the Savior, and this morning we'll be reminded that he also reigns as King. We'll be reminded that he came once and he's coming again, and his reign as King will have no end. Just because we don't see him here by sight doesn't mean his authority doesn't still stand. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. What I hope you'll hear and walk away with this morning, if it's just one thing, is this. As we wait for Jesus' return, we joyfully submit to his worthy reign as king. I'll say it again. As we wait for Jesus' return, we joyfully submit to his worthy reign as king. We'll see this in four parts They're really wordy. You note takers, get ready to write really fast or better. Pull your phones up. I'm stalling right now. Pull your phones up. Take a picture. You can't write all that. I'm going slow for you, slowly. Number one, you're going to see he's the rightful king, worthy of our faithful stewardship. He's the sovereign and humble king, worthy of praise. He's the lamenting king, worthy to pronounce judgment, and he's the holy king, worthy of authority to cleanse the temple. I won't say all that again, but I'll stall for another couple seconds. Got your phones out. Everyone's put them away. One more. Good. So first, let's look at he's the rightful king. 
worthy of our faithful stewardship. We'll see this in the parable of the 10 minas. Quickly, there's some cultural context that I think is really helpful for us to understand this parable. Jesus probably had a recent news article in the back of his mind as he told this parable. A guy named Archelaus was the, what's called the ethnarch of this region. Remember, they're ruled by Rome. They have Roman kings and vassal kings. And, and, king, uh, and Archelaus, not King Arch- Archelaus, that's the point of the story. He, he's what's called an ethnarch, like a governor. His dad was Herod the Great, the same Herod the Great from Matthew chapter 2 that killed all the babies. When Herod the Great died, Archelaus went to Rome to Caesar to say, I don't want to be ethnarch anymore, I want to be king. And so Archelaus brought a lot of his family members with him to back him up. And when he got there, apparently his family actually undermined him and said, we don't think this guy should be, you should give him the title of king. And the Jews sent a delegation behind him also to Rome to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. And so Caesar didn't make anyone happy. He said, he's going to get to rule, but he doesn't get the title of king. He's Archelaus the wannabe. That's really helpful context to Jesus telling this parable of something that just happened in his lifetime. So Luke tells us why Jesus tells the parable. It says, because he was near to Jerusalem, in verse 11, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. We've said this a lot in our series in Luke. The Jews didn't understand that there would be a first and a second coming of the Messiah. They thought at his first coming, he would be the political warrior Messiah who would overthrow Rome and establish his eternal kingly reign. And since Jesus was nearing Jerusalem, they presumed he was about to establish his reign then and there. But that wasn't the plan. As we all know, he was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross outside of the city for the sins of his people first, to rise again, to ascend to heaven where he would be enthroned as the king of his people, given the name above all names, king of kings, lord of lords, and then someday come back to establish his kingdom on earth. But that earthly kingdom would not appear immediately, and it's been 2,000 years of waiting. Come, Lord Jesus, bring heaven to earth. Establish your eternal reign. This parable And the next three paragraphs that we're going to see, triumphal entry, weeping over Jerusalem, Jesus cleansing the temple, show us again who Jesus is, what he does, and how we can live in light of those things. So with regards to the parable, I would remind you all, a principle of interpretation for parables, we should be careful about over-interpreting the parables. The point of parables is to make a, a central point, usually on a moral or ethical subject. I took a preaching class one time about preaching the parables, and they gave this definition for parables. It's usually a narrative story grounded in the real world that is used to provoke the audience on a moral, ethical, or spiritual subject. So I'll summarize the parable. We'll focus on the central point and what it means for us. There's a few characters you heard read in the parable. There's a nobleman, some of his servants, and citizens. The nobleman goes away into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. But before leaving, he calls 10 of his servants and gives them one mina each. That's about three months wages and tells them to do business. He tells them to steward his money well. The citizens in the parable send a delegation. Sound familiar? They send a delegation as he's leaving 
to join him there and say they don't want the noblemen to reign over them. When he returns, he calls his servants to himself and tells them to give an account of their stewardship. We don't hear how all ten servants did. We hear about three. One servant earned the nobleman ten more minas and was rewarded with an even larger stewardship, ten cities. The next earned the nobleman five minas, and he was rewarded with stewardship over five cities. The final servant didn't do anything with the nobleman's mina. It says he hid it in a handkerchief and gave it back to the nobleman. And it says why he didn't do anything in verse 21. He says, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And the nobleman responds. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they say, Lord, he already has 10 minas. And then Jesus tells them and us the central point of the parable. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. The first two servants were faithful stewards of the nobleman's money. They recognized that that's exactly what they were, servants and stewards. They say, your mina has made 10 more. Your mina has made five more. The third recognized the same thing, but he didn't respond correctly. He he didn't deem the nobleman was worthy of his faithful stewardship. The first two servants did deem the nobleman worthy of their hard work and faithfulness, and they were rewarded greatly. They didn't just get more minas. They got responsibility over cities. They, they were rewarded graciously. They got the opportunity to steward even more. There's a Jewish saying at the time that says this, the reward of a duty done is a duty to be done. That's what the first half of verse 26 means. More was given to them because they were faithful stewards. That little word has in that verse implies a lot. I tell you that to everyone who has been a faithful steward, more will be given. But the other half of verse 26 is illustrated in the third servant. The third servant was the one who had not been a faithful steward. So even what he had, one mina was taken away. The first two servants represent anyone who has joyfully submitted to Jesus as king. And the third servant, I believe, represents those who say they are his servants, but don't actually know him and don't actually submit to him or steward his things. Unless you think I'm trying to avoid the hard verse, verse 27, remember there were citizens who did not even want to pretend to be servants and therefore steward the nobleman's things. They don't, they don't actually know him. They don't submit to him. They didn't want the nobleman to reign over them. And when the nobleman returned, they were brought before him and slaughtered. And I believe this represents those who outright deny Jesus as king, specifically in this context, the religious leaders of Israel, by and large, but can be anybody who doesn't submit to Jesus Christ as king. So let me address a couple questions I think you may be wondering, and then how does this parable apply to us? What does it mean? Here's a tough one. 
Does this parable teach that there will be different rewards in heaven? Many, many trusted pastors, theologians, and scholars think yes. And many think no. Honestly, brothers and sisters, if I'm allowed to say it up here, I don't know where I stand yet. I don't know if I have a deep conviction. I'm kind of on the fence. I tried to study hard this week, but for me, one week isn't enough to land in a deep conviction. I want to say this, though. The first time I heard this was in our PLI class. I was at the crossing in Fort Collins, part of the Crossway Network, the systematic theology that we go through. Wayne Grudem, trusted pastor and theologian, believes that there are differing rewards in heaven. And the first time I heard that, I freaked out. And some of you might be totally freaking out right now, like I was. Like your heresy alarm is going off. I want to encourage you. That's an overreaction minded too. It's not heresy. Those who would argue for differing rewards in heaven love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those that I know and trust who land here. This this doctrine, it doesn't undermine the gospel. This doctrine has nothing to do with salvation except understanding that faithful stewards are saved people. Many do joyfully embrace that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're not undermining the gospel whatsoever. So if you're feeling the way I did that first time, I hope you can take a, a few deep breaths. This is a secondary issue. Let's study hard. If you have an opinion, please share it with me. But I want to share another, I'd say, even more important thing. Heaven is going to be a place of full and forever joy. We, we probably freak out. I probably freaked out when I first heard differing rewards in heaven because I'm viewing heaven with my sinful human understanding. Remember, there's going to be no envy, no jealousy, full and forever joy. It's going to be amazing. Our cups are all going to be overflowing. We're going to be with the triune God by sight. We will be so happy every millisecond of every day. I think we're going to work. I'm pretty sure we are. God's design seemed like work was a part of the world before the fall. Don't bring our American theology that heaven's going to be this disembodied spiritual place where we're chubby babies singing all the time. Remember, it's going to be a physical place. And remember, heaven's here. We think of it as there. And, and if we die before he comes back, it's there for a little bit. But that's not the final plan. He's coming back. New heavens, new earth, physical bodies. I think we're going to be tending gardens. I think we're going to be building cities. We will always continue to be made in God's image. And one of those things is that we're going to be creative. We're going to probably still write music. I think, now, sorry, I'm going to do it again, sanctified imagination, but I think he's going to give you a job when you get there that you're going to fall to your knees in absolute worship. Like, here's what I created you to do for the rest of eternity. Chad, you're going to go door to door in the neighborhoods of heaven and you're going to knock and people are going to open the door and you're going to encourage each person for three hours. You're going to tell them, I like your shoes and I like your jeans and I like your hair and I like your life and God loves you and Christ is worthy and you're in heaven and isn't this great? And then Chad, at the end of the day, when you come home to your house, there's going to be 30 dogs waiting for you. Some of them puppies, some of them middle-aged, some of them old dogs. I don't think there's going to be old dogs because time, but you just go with me. And you have to cuddle with each dog for three hours as well. 
and I'm going to fall on my face in worship and say, that's exactly what you created me for. And when Josh is governor over 10 cities, I'm going to say, that's exactly what you made him for. Praise you. And, and I don't want to be governor over 10 cities. I want to be the encourager and the puppy cuddler. And he doesn't want to be the encourager. You get it. You get it. It's going to be amazing. Wherever we land, it's a secondary doctrine. There's joy in faithful stewardship. One more quick question. If the nobleman represents Jesus, why is he described as severe in verse 21? Remember, don't overinterpret the parable. The same thing we saw in the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, God was contrasted with the unrighteous judge. If the widow got justice from an unrighteous judge, how much more justice are we going to get from a perfectly righteous judge who we can call Abba, Father? So I think Jesus here is contrasted with the nobleman, but also it may be, this is what I think, that the, the third servant has no idea about the actual character of the nobleman. He doesn't know the nobleman. We've just seen the nobleman be extremely gracious to the first two servants. Like he could have said, you've earned 10 minas, I'm just going to give you 10 more minas. He gave him 10 cities. Like the reward was proportional, but abundantly gracious. So I think the third servant has no idea his character. He's just condemning the servant with his own words. If you think I'm severe, why didn't you do the bare minimum, bro? Like put the thing in the bank and let it earn a little bit of interest. I'm condemning you with your own words. If you really believed I was severe, you would have done at least the bare minimum. This servant doesn't know the nobleman, doesn't know his character. So what does this parable mean for us? The primary application for us Christians is not primarily how we steward the money God has given us. There's, there's a deeper spiritual point here. He's using minas to make a point. The primary application, I believe, the commentators believe, the, the, the theologians and pastors, that it's how we steward the gospel. How are we stewarding the Christian faith and all the things pertaining to the kingdom of God? How we steward our money is downriver from that. It's under that umbrella. But it's not the primary point. It's bigger than that. It's more spiritual than that. How are we stewarding the gospel? The apostle Paul would repeatedly speak of being entrusted with the gospel. You've read it all over the New Testament. In, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 3, and 4, I won't read the whole thing, but he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God. We, we've been trusted with the gospel, so we live for God in submission to his kingship and authority who tests our hearts. So the question we can ask ourselves is, how am I stewarding everything I am and everything I have in light of the gospel and for the gospel, for the propagation of the gospel? As a parent, Am I really taking the time with my kids to teach them about who Jesus Christ is and how to live in light of God's grace to us in Christ? Am I spending time passing on the faith to my children in intentional ways? Am I stewarding them? I believe God's going to use us to impact a lot of people. But parents in here, I want to free you and encourage you. If the only disciples that God uses you to make is your kids, that is a life well lived. That is faithful stewardship. He's given me three little ones. And my primary calling, even before this church and helping make disciples here, is the three precious ones in my living room. And am I stewarding the gospel well with them? Maybe as a homeowner, am I using the home God has given me to practice hospitality 
Am I willing to have friends and neighbors and community group over to say, God, this, is, this, this home is a gift from you. We've been feeling that still two years in. You know, part of our story, you lived with my parents for eight years. We're still worshiping God that he's given us a home to steward well. And our prayer is, Lord, help us steward it well. Help this be a place where we make disciples of one another and of our church and host unbelieving friends and family. What about my job? Am I stewarding my time and my work ethic well? Am I working hard, the Bible says, as unto the Lord and not for man? Am I working honestly and diligently? Missionally, am I seeking to build relationships with one or two people that don't know Christ? Having gospel conversations with them, praying for boldness. One commentary says this. It's probably not going to be up there because I just added it this morning, so just listen close. Each believer receives the same investment capital for his Christian life. Joe Christian receives the same as St. Paul and John Calvin and Billy Graham. We all have the good news of Jesus Christ and its marvelous effects on our lives. And we all have the same command, engage in business until I come. We must invest the investment Christ has made in us. We are to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase the yield of the good news of salvation through Christ. This is not a matter of gifts, but of investment. Saints, when we know who Jesus is, the rightful king, and not only that he does not take what he did not deposit or reap what he didn't sow, but that he lived and died for us, we reap what he sowed, and we get to take what he deposited. Does that not make us want to respond that he is worthy of us being faithful stewards? That's what rises in my heart. Because of you, Jesus, because of what you did, because I've been able to call you Savior and Messiah, I can also submit to you as Lord and say, you are worthy of me to be a faithful steward for you, for your glory. Let's look at the next scene. He is the sovereign and humble king worthy of praise. This passage is known as the triumphal entry. He's about to enter Jerusalem, which at the time was a huge walled city. And as he's nearing Jerusalem, he's just outside of it near two little villages, the text says, and on the Mount of Olives, he's about to prove his sovereignty over the events leading up to his death and we'll even see even over his death. A uh, commentator told me, and I pay it forward to you that we see his sovereignty all throughout scriptures, but a theme from here on out in Luke is Jesus is in control, absolute control of the events leading up to his death and even his death, and he's worthy of praise. So, like Babe Ruth in 1932, you've heard the story, Babe Ruth comes up to bat World Series, calls his shot, points to center field, bashes it right where he called it. That was pretty lucky, pretty arrogant. Jesus can do that because he's God. So Jesus calls his shots, always has, always will. And he's coming into Jerusalem and he's gonna call his shot. He tells two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. No one's ever sat on it. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you, I should say, since someone's going to ask you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. There's prophecy that the Messiah would ride on a colt into Jerusalem. 500 years before Jesus would do this, and he's sovereign, he's calling his shots, he's gonna fulfill this prophecy. It's from 
Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the two disciples do what he said. They, they, they were sent away and they found it just as he told them. They're untying the colt and the owners say, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they throw their cloaks on the donkey, set Jesus on it, and ride into the city. He's the sovereign and humble king. He's fulfilling scripture, being the upside-down king that he is. Among many other things, he's humble. Earthly kings, back in this time when they would go and win a war and come back into their city, you've probably seen a movie with this, there was such pomp and pageantry. The, the king would be on the biggest, most beautiful horse. I'm thinking of a white horse. The horse is all decked out. He's with probably some of his generals and some of his army. There's maybe trumpeters going before him saying the king is coming and he's won. Often behind him would be the king or kings that he conquered in chains, wrists, and ankles. Sometimes eyes gouged out vain, glorious, look at me, I'm the man, I did it, I conquered, look at all of these in submission to me, but not King Jesus. He comes in on a donkey, a baby donkey. Nobody before him, nobody behind him, except a few disciples. And, and the, but those around can't help but treating him like a king by spreading their cloaks on the road. In the other gospel accounts, we see that they're waving palm branches. There are some there who's saying, this is a king. And then the whole multitude starts rejoicing and praising God for all the mighty works they had seen Christ do as God's Messiah. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, it's been one of continuous demonstration of God's power. The deaf speak, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the gospel is preached. And they say in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now it's the crowd who are fulfilling prophecy. I think probably not even knowing it. They're just saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118, verse 26. It says exactly that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 originally depicts this anointed king that's talked about a lot in Psalms. That's a type of Christ. This anointed king is leading pilgrims to the temple and receiving a greeting of welcome from the priests at the temple, probably on the occasion of some major victory. So Jesus is bringing this kingdom hope and fulfillment as the king of his people on the verge of his victory over sin and death. But as we constantly see, not everyone believed he was the king. So in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees are the citizens in the previous parable. They don't want Jesus ruling over them. They're like the crowd from last week who told blind Bartimaeus, be quiet. But they had no authority over, his, over Jesus or his disciples. So Jesus responds, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The irony is thick in the Gospels, isn't it? I've been seeing that a lot lately. Even rocks can see better than Pharisees. Even rocks can truly worship better than Pharisees. 
One says it like this, that which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. He is worthy of our praise, isn't he? He's the sovereign and humble king. Are there times where you say, I have to cry out, I have to worship this king? I don't care what anyone says or what anyone thinks, the application saints is worship. He's sovereign and he's humble and he's worthy of our praise. That's why we gather week by week to sing songs to him, to, to praise him together. And I commend you, sing alone throughout the week. Praise him alone. He's not just worthy when we're here together. He's worthy every minute of every day. He's worthy of our praise. But there's more. There's still more. He's also the lamenting king, worthy to pronounce judgment. We see this as he weeps over Jerusalem. Even though the last paragraph is called the triumphal entry. This scene shows us he hasn't quite entered yet. He's getting closer and closer. He's still probably on the donkey and he sees Jerusalem and he starts weeping. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Another irony, Jerusalem means the city of peace. The city of peace didn't recognize the prince of peace and therefore missed the things that make for peace. Jesus is lamenting at Jerusalem's rejection of him. Sure, there's a few who received him as king and Messiah, but by and large, most didn't. This is reminiscent of the prophets. He's saddened by their hardness of heart and their unwillingness to see who Jesus really is. And we should follow Jesus in this. I'll be the first to admit that I can get angry at our sinful culture. The direction our culture is sprinting, I can get angry. And some of it is probably righteous anger. But I don't as often get as sad as I could or should at people who haven't recognized Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This came up actually in community group a few weeks ago. And we were saying, we wouldn't get mad at a blind slave. If you're on the SWAT team, there's a bad guy situation, a hostage situation, and you get the bad guy out and you go into his basement, and there's someone in the basement with chains, wrists, and ankles, and blind, you don't get mad at that person. You're not like, come on, why didn't you break out of your chains and do surgery on your eyes and give yourself new eyes? And yet we can do that with our culture, with people who are, who are Slaves to their sin and totally blind. May we continue to, to feel sad, to weep for, for, for people in this culture who, who are totally blind, totally slaves. May we continue to offer salvation in Christ. Christ can free you. Christ can give you eyes. Come to Christ. That's a big way we can be like Jesus, but his next comments are unique for him. As king, he can pronounce judgment on the, cities, on the citizens who reject him. So he says in, at the end of 42 and 43, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is prophesying the de destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Rome would completely destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. It would be razed to the ground. Even the temple would be destroyed. 
and it would be evidence of God's judgment on Israel for not accepting, receiving, submitting to Jesus as the rightful king. They missed him because they didn't know the time of their visitation. Brothers and sisters, aren't you grateful you didn't miss the time of your visitation? Isn't there such joy and worship knowing that God has placed his love on you specifically and individually and us as a church and has allowed us to come to him through King Jesus? Remember, we're not, always the, we're not the good guy in the Bible stories. Whenever we read about the bad guys, that's us. We're supposed to say, but by the grace of God, there go I. Meaning if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would have gone the same way. I would have missed the time of my visitation. I would have missed King Jesus unless you freed me from my shackles and gave me spiritual eyes to see Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I commend you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss the time of your visitation. I believe God has brought you here. I believe he's in control of everything. You could have been in another church, you could have slept in, but here you are hearing about how to be saved and restored to God through King Jesus. Don't miss it this morning. Don't wait till later. Repent and believe in Jesus. If you do that for your first time, please come talk to me about it. I would love to celebrate with you, pray with you, help you plug in at this church. We'll walk together until Jesus comes back. Jesus is the rightful king, worthy of our faithful stewardship. He's the sovereign king, worthy of our praise. He's the lamenting king, worthy to pronounce judgment. And finally, he's the holy king, worthy of authority to cleanse the temple. Between the last paragraph and this one, not only has Jesus entered Jerusalem, but he's entered the temple and he's angry. In the temple, there would be money changers and sellers of sacrificial animals. They would serve worshipers who had traveled from a distance, providing blemish-free animals for offering and coins that would be acceptable for the payment of tithes. And this would have been done in the court of the Gentiles, which, have, which would have been the only place that Gentiles could go in the temple in the first century to pray to the one true God. And just like tax collectors often did, the money changers and sellers of animals would upcharge the currency exchange and the animals and make huge profits. So Jesus drives them out. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. I won't again, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. They had made the temple of den of robbers, and he got them out. And if he, as the worthy king, had authority to cleanse the temple, then he can and still does that now. But now it's not a building. It's us. You've read the New Testament. We are the temple of the living God as individuals and as a church. Christ, by his spirit, has come into us and cleansed us. This temple inside of me, this temple in us, set us apart for holy use. He's purified our worship no more external actions done apart from love. No more external religion. No more using religion for personal gain among the true believers. We're cleansed and we're being cleansed. Praise him. Finally, it says he's teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and now principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. They're gonna keep trying to trap him. They can't. He's in control of it. All the people were hanging on his words. No one spoke like this man because he's the holy king. Jesus is the rightful 
king worthy to be submitted to in our stewardship. Sovereign and humble king worthy of our praise. He's the lamenting king worthy to pronounce judgment. He's the holy king worthy with authority to cleanse the temple. Behold your king, Windsor Community Church, and respond accordingly. Those attributes I just mentioned of King Jesus should cause us to respond with a desire, right? To be faithful stewards, passionate worshipers, grateful God-fearers, and reverent rejoicers. We all live for someone or something, don't we? We're, we're, we're just because we're made in God's image. We are worshipers. The royal family of England lives for the queen and now the king. Everyone else in that system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider, but not so in the kingdom of God under King Jesus. When we submit to his worthy reign as king, we become found, loved, purposeful insiders. What else is worth living for? Father, take it in us, we pray. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the worthy king. We submit to his kingship even here and now again. Jesus, you are king of kings and lord of lords. Help us use our lives for your glory in our stewardship and praise, in our fear of you, the holy, righteous, reverent fear of you. We praise you that you gave us eyes to see Jesus and not miss the time of our visitation. We pray it in his name, amen.